Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guest this week is Julia Lee, Chief Investment Officer of Berman Invest. How are we today? I think um, we were saying before we, we got into this that um, coronavirus is all the rage at the moment. I'm guessing that's the one thing people are asking you to commentate on this week. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we are looking at not only the health implications of coronavirus, but the market crash that's happened around that. And I guess when you look at the markets, there's always going to be panics. Um, the key question is whether you're going to be one of those people that panics in the middle of it. But these panics usually only happen once a decade. Um, and I always say never waste a good panic. So what you're really going to do about that panic to try and set yourself up financially for the next 10 years so the coronavirus is still developing. We're still seeing big falls in terms of the market. Um, but I know that volatility does tend to cluster. And usually I try and stay on the sidelines for at least around about two to three months. Um, but then opportunities should start to emerge. Yeah, I think um, I was speaking to a few analyst friends uh, earlier this week and they were talking about, oh, this is, you know, opportunity of a lifetime. And I was sort of saying to them, like, don't you remember the GFC? Like this, this it it every ten years you sort of get these periods where you get massive downswings, like where the exchange can go down by fifty percent. I mean, I think it was yesterday, right? That the US, the FTSE, pretty much everything was down about ten percent just in one day. So I think I think you're right. I think sitting on the sidelines, um, when people look back on this interview in two to three years from now, they'll be like, oh. These guys had to, had a few more months ahead of them before they really saw how bad it got. Yeah, I think the difference between now and the global financial crisis is, uh, number one, this is a health crisis, um, which means that yeah. people are actually going to die. And there are implications, not only from the health perspective, but from uh, for humans as well um, and for people and families. Are so, so stay safe out there. But secondly, um, the policy options that are available – a uh, few and far between, given that interest rates are near zero or below zero in much of the world. So um, policymakers are, have their hands tied a little bit there and we'll have to look at physical measures as well as non-traditional measures. So a little bit mm. different from the global financial crisis in that it's yeah. a health crisis that's having real-world implications. What time have you had to go back and look at similar events in history like uh, i everyone talks about the spanish flu right i i do wonder 
what were you know was if this is a health crisis do things typically bounce back uh, quite quickly during that sort of thing as opposed to a financial crisis where there are larger systemic issues. I guess that's what everyone's been wondering, right? Sure. I mean, it does depend on the severity and the duration of the coronavirus um, and how many regions it, it impacts. Um, and we don't know that yet. So there's still a lot of uncertainty as we're doing this interview. Generally, when you see event-driven events um, for, for things like H1N1 or swine flu and SARS, there was a, a very quick bounce back by the market um, once right. the, the risk had passed. Markets don't like uncertainty. Um, so as soon as we start to get a bit more information around how severe and deep it's likely to be, then the markets will be able to better price that event. So generally, you do see V-shaped recoveries. The one key thing to be watching here is employment. As long as people can hold on to their jobs, then we're likely to be able to recover quickly. But if we see a steep loss of jobs, then that means that recovery is going to be more protracted. Mm, That's a good point. A good thing for people to be looking out for. Interesting. All right. I want to jump back to your your early career. We're talking about this before we jumped onto the recording. i I guess I'm always intrigued when we speak to guests, what sort of the earliest memory of their childhood and what did they think they were going to be when they were growing up? Uh, so I, I packed my bags when I was five years old and I told my mum I was going on camp. Um, so we had church camp with all the big kids oh, and yeah. she told me I was too young and I insisted and I had my little suitcase packed. And so she let me go, <laughs> thinking she'd get the call to come pick me up in a few hours. Um, but I stayed there and I loved it. She got updates. She said, um, Julie's just following all the big kids around and getting her lunch, sitting in the corner and eating it. She's doing fine. <laughs> my, my poor parents. <laughs> Do you, did you have an idea as to what you wanted to be when you were – a kid? I did. I had. I wanted to be a lawyer from quite a young age, um, from uh, seven. So whenever anyone asked me, I'd say, I want to be a lawyer. But I guess the reality, reality of it, once I finished school, there was a high unemployment rate with lawyers at the time. So instead of doing uh, just the three years of law, you had to do it in a double degree, which meant five years of study, then the extra year of law school, three years practicing as a solicitor to be a barrister. So it's the best part of 10 years. And I thought, mm. yeah, I don't want to do that. Yeah, you studied, um, I think you went to a, an academically selective college. You ended up studying, uh, you went to UTS, right? I think counting yes. and finance. Yeah. Yes. Um, you've had, I mean, LinkedIn shows all the, the key roles that you've had. But I was curious because um, it was quite funny looking at one of these talks you did for Bell Potter you're talking about how like your first days of investing, you know, you decided, all right, I like wine. I'm going to invest yeah. in wine. And then, <laughs> and then you want things to go north, so you're looking at North Limited. And then, yes. of course, you found Julia Mines. Yes, that, um, that's right. <laughs> what, was, um, what was your first actual gig outside of uni? Well, after uni, I actually went overseas to – my background's Korean, but I was born in Australia, so my Korean's uh-huh. terrible. So I went to Seoul University to learn Korean for a while. Um, I didn't really enjoy that and I actually ended up coming back early. But during um, university here, I um, I was managing an Italian restaurant. So um, <laughs> then I tried to open one and um, I, I took my 
business plan to NAB in my only suit and they gave me a loan. And of course, the business never opened, didn't do well, and I had to pay back the loan. So I thought, um, well, what am I going to do now? And I was looking through the paper and I saw this ad that says, do you want to be a stockbroker? And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds uh-huh. good. <laughs> and, and I've never looked back since. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how like a lot of your background was on the client side, selling to clients and engaging with clients. And now you've sort of worked at Berman, which is really funds management. You could almost argue like more uh, on the buy side. I guess I was curious, what's sort of been the the highlights and lowlights for you thus far in your career? Mm, I think um, just having the ability to manage my own money and um, to be able to create wealth um, for me has been the most rewarding. I started out, when I started out in the markets, as you would know, the advice I got was go with the names that you know and trust. So at the time, you know, out of uni and um, drinking a lot of wine, I, a Treasury Wine Estates, uh, no, South Corp, which got bought out by Treasury Wine Estates, was the first stock oh, yeah. I owned. So, um, you know, I put $500, which was the minimum investment in that, and a month later I doubled my money. Um, and then you'd know that I put into North Limited because I don't <laughs> want my shares to go south. I want them to go north. And once again, I doubled my money there. And then I thought, Third time lucky, I was looking and there was a company called Julia Mines and um, my name's Julia. So I put my money in there and I doubled my money a month later when Julia Mines became Julia Limited. And I guess the point of this story is always that there are times in the market where it's very easy to make money. In fact, it's virtually impossible to lose money. And then there are other times where it's a lot harder. And when I started out in the markets, that was during the tech boom where everything was going yeah. up. And that was a time when it's very easy to make money. So I think I think it's very important to read market conditions as well as understanding the businesses that you own. What was the first moment where you realized that um, it's not always uh, sunshine and roses? Oh, this is a big story. So – um. One of the first jobs that I had was in investor education, which was traveling around Australia, teaching people how to invest in shares. Um, and uh, I was working for Comor Bank at the time, and they wanted us to start doing options seminars. And um, uh-huh. I, I always had a thing that I wouldn't teach someone else to do something that I wasn't confident and I hadn't done already. So I started options trading. And I thought, this is a no-brainer. You know, I'll just start selling puts. And really, when you're selling naked puts, um, you have unlimited downside. But my reasoning at the time was that, you know, I would have bought these shares anyway. What I'm actually doing is just collecting the premium and worst case scenario, I have to buy the shares, but I was going to buy them anyway. Um, but I was I remember being 23 years old and I had two naked put positions. One was on aristocrat leisure and uh, I can't remember what the other one was on. But both of these companies came out with profit downgrades on the same day. So I remember sitting on this floor with 200 other young people um, on a broking uh, floor and um, I'd lost just over $30,000 in Jesus. <laughs> one day and I was 23 years old. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, wow. <laughs> it was just beyond the spear of my comprehension. Did you have to materialize the loss though? Yes, so I got called on. I had to buy the stock. So, um, wow. 
at, of course, the the price that the option uh, specified. So luckily I had a margin loan attached to my options account, which you could do back then, and I just put on the margin loan. But I guess I learned from that. And a year later, not only had I made back all those losses, but I'd made a lot of money. And actually the first property I bought um, was with the money I'd made from options trading. So I got there in the end. Um, It wasn't a smooth ride. But whenever I I do look at investing – Especially when I started out, I told myself most things in life, it takes about three years before you can really get a handle on it. If you want to study any sort of profession, it's usually about three years. So that's what I told myself. I said, I'll give myself three years. And in that time, it's okay to make losses. But what I want to come out of that three years with is the skills to be able to manage my own money and to create wealth. And I figured that I'd have that skill for the rest of my life. So I had an investing and trading diary. Um, and I tried out as many methods as I can during that time, um, as well as different products. So, you know, options, yeah. warrants, um, fundamental analysis, technical analysis. Uh, yeah. I think that is like a real common feature amongst a lot of people that we interview is, and it's saying that I try to take in myself at a, at a younger age is looking at those first few years of, of trading or investing as a learning period. I'm I feel like a lot of people who have had success have times when they're almost certainly wiped out in one go. And for me, it was uh, oil futures. I don't know why, but yeah, I got into oil futures. I was at uni, you know, classic trading it on margin, of course. And yeah, like all the savings that I had, which was not much, it was like four or five grand at uni, which for me, because I was earning not much, was a lot of money. Like it was everything I had. And then... I was trading that and then in the space of a week, I pretty much lost it all after being, you know, after having traded that market for like six months. And I feel like that was a big wake up call because you sort of get those moments and like a lot of guests have said, you realize that um, it's not always sunshine and roses, if that makes sense. Um, But yeah, I feel like that's, that's a commonality amongst a lot of guests. Yeah, um, the the market has volatility, and that's what makes it terrifying as well as exciting. Um, I guess the other period was the global financial crisis, uh, yeah. which was a hard one. I I got lucky there. I sold half of my portfolio in June two thousand and seven, and I was a hundred percent out in December two thousand and seven. Um, and then come March two thousand and nine, I actually sold that apartment that I initially bought with the options, and I put it back into the market. So. So um, I don't mind trying to read the market because I understand that that's uh, what's behind easy or difficult conditions to make money. Mm. Now you're, like I said earlier, you've you've moved from you know if we think of Bell Potter, um, classic Australian or Bell Direct rather, classic Mm -hmm. Australian business. Uh, You're at Hub Financial Group. A lot of these roles were focused on dealing with clients uh, as a broker or analyst or commenta- commentator of some sort. And now you've, you, you've moved to Berman. I think you've been there for about seven months and it's your first role as a CIO, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been the most intriguing thing for you moving from purely the sell side to the buy side? Uh, well, my, my passion has always been stock selection. So being able to do that um, is fantastic. So in terms of my actual job, I absolutely love it. Um, I think 
the part that I, I really enjoyed the most is that I, I've always been a numbers person, so I like crunching numbers. And um, I found that just when I was trying to analyze stocks and analyze the market that my Excel spreadsheets just kept on crashing. So um, it was time to pick up a new skill. So I have a book called uh, Pandas for Everyone on my desk, which is about Python coding. Um, mm-hmm. And the parts of my strategy that I could, um, I, I've been working with a guy over in Canada who's amazing um, mm-hmm. to code up the, the parts of my analysis that, that could be done. And that has been fantastic because it's cut down my workload by about 90%. So the soft Jeez. touch stuff I still do, but anything that's based on historical numbers, a lot of that has been uh, automated, which is amazing. Mm. Yeah, that, that was one thing I was thinking about is, um, is process. How does someone at your stage now in your career, what, what does your investment decision process look like? And it sounds like for years you were sort of operating on punching the numbers manually, but now you sort of have like a, let's call it a quant system that does a lot of the calculations for you and you're able to make decisions faster. Does that mean that now you're primarily looking at a bunch of companies that you like uh, or are you looking for indicators from that system that are, you know, you're, you're agnostic to whatever type of business they are? How does it sort of work for you, that process? Sure. Um, mine, mine is on one or the other. Um, I mean, if you think about the Australian share market, there's over 1,700 companies on the market and you'd need an extremely big team and it'd be a lot of work to analyse all of those companies. So for me, the process is all about knocking out those companies that I'm not interested in to get my investment universe down to a more manageable number. And that's really what the, the numbers and the filtering is all about, just getting the stocks down to a manageable number that I can then go and research uh, further. Um, it's not a system that just um, looks at the results and automatically invests in those companies because that wouldn't be a good way of investing um, because I do still like to look at structural as well as cyclical trends out there in the market. And when you say manageable number, what does manageable mean to you? Like I can't, I don't think I can really monitor more than three or four companies at a time. Uh, what, What does that number look like for you when you're doing it full time? Sure. In the portfolio, there's 15 to 25 stocks, but in any given day, I might um, I might look through five to 10 stocks. Um, but it it isn't while it's an active fund, it it doesn't trade on a daily basis. It's only when yeah. those opportunities arise. Um, but really. This particular fund deals with companies with improving outlooks. So having a look at companies with um, an improving business profile together with price momentum. And these type of companies tend to do well when the market is rising, but it doesn't do well when volatility hits. So across yeah. the top of the investment strategy is an asset allocation strategy, which is based on volatility and some of uh, a few other market measures as well. So when uh, that system says to go to cash because it's uh, indicative of an environment where the strategy doesn't work, there's a move to cash built in there as well. Um, I wanted it to be something that I'd be confident in investing my own money uh, over a number of decades. So that's how I, I built that strategy and my own money's invested in there. I think a lot of people like that. There's nothing worse when you have an investment team or management team in a fund that aren't invested. Uh, so uh, that's good to hear because I, I don't know what the percentages are, but I feel like the majority, the, there's a, quite a large number of um, 
fund managers that don't always have their own money in the fund. Um, but that's a you know that's another discussion for another day. <laughs> um, I I'm thinking about your resources and you know like people always ask these questions of oh where do you where do you find your information from? But I often find that the people in sort of your position have texts or areas of data that you always fall back on. And as an, as an example for me, it's things like I, I love Morningstar data and I love, as a value investor, I love Guru Focus because a lot of the, um, I guess you could say, analytics or numbers that they run are very focused on like free cash flow. So sure. for you, uh, <laughs> what, what are the age-old uh, data sources that you're always finding yourself going back to? Like are you always reading the AFR in the morning or – jumping on Twitter, what sort of your go-to areas? I uh, I have this problem where I run out of things to read. So I actually <laughs> read every single um, news website you can think of multiple times a day. I was a little bit deprived as a kid in that my parents wouldn't let me watch TV. No. <laughs> um, I was only allowed to watch half an hour a day and I was only allowed to watch Neighbours or the news. Okay. And then my mum decided that Neighbours was too racy so I was only allowed to watch the news. So <laughs> books were really my form of entertainment. Um, so I, I love reading and um, – Literally, I will go and read the AFR, News, Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian. Anything you can get your hands anything on. Anything I can get my hands on. Whenever I've got a spare chance, I will be reading it all and then some international websites as well. It's so funny that you mentioned about um, your mum because I, I sort of come from an immigrant background as well, being Greek. And um, my... My parents were like the racist thing we we're allowed to watch was The Simpsons, and then after a while they <laughs> they cut that out completely. Um, now I want to come back to the way that you view markets. Like what what are what are the key principles that you view the markets in? I know that one of the I guess the key elements of your competitive advantage is like a lot of prior guests. You don't really focus on fundamental versus technical analysis. You know, like you're not dogmatically going down one particular way. Uh, mm. So, how do you think about your general principles for assessing actual markets? Are you looking at it like, okay, I want to see how things are going generally, and then I'm looking at industries and then specific companies? How do you view those principles? Uh, so, when I view the market, I, I view it in different layers. So, there's the economic cycle, which um, tells me what the business environment is like. Is it a good environment or a bad environment, an easy or a hard environment to for businesses to be growing and making money? And then I like to look at it in terms of individual businesses. Um, are they doing well? Aren't they doing well? What's driving that? Are there any trends um, underlying that, whether it's a structural trend, for example, the, the bricks to clicks, or um, is there something cyclical, um, uh, the market's pricing in forever drought and, you know, one day the drought is going to break, something like that. Um, mm. And then I like to look at the timing aspect of it as well because um, I, I don't like buying something and then finding it falls and continues to fall. I don't have the risk appetite for that, so I use the timing aspect of it as well. And I guess if I was to sum up the way I think of investing in companies, it would be around um, buying a business. Let's say I was going to buy my local corner shop 
And mm-hmm. I bought that local corner shop and profits there had been going up by 10% every year for decades and there were forecasts to go up by 10% every year. And I bought that corner shop for $2 million. But having you know bought that corner shop three months later, I decided that actually I really don't like having a corner shop. It's just not for me. And I decided to go and sell that corner shop. Nothing had changed. It was still growing at 10%. It was still forecast to grow at 10%. How much would I be able to sell that business for? And the answer is probably around the same price for $2 million. And that's because nothing has changed. And if nothing changes within a business, then the valuation or the value of that business shouldn't change either. So when I look at the share market, really I'm looking for that change to change the value of a company. So for example, let's say in record time, there was supposed to be an apartment block going up next to that corner shop. It would be built within one month. There were a thousand people moving into that apartment and you know that corner shop was no longer forecast to grow at 10%, but you know, many times that, then would I be able to sell that corner shop for more than $2 million? And the answer is probably yes. And the catalyst for that change in value is that there's been a change. There's something that's happened that has caused a change in the value of that business. So that's really how I look at businesses on the market. I look for catalysts and I look at well, what is it that's going to change the value of that business? And often when it comes to companies, it could be a a new management, new strategy, new product, um, or it could be riding a structural shift or a cyclical uh, cycle as well. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's quite similar to value investing in that regard. It's looking at whether the growth will change the business and in turn, does that affect the price and its value? And it's a I guess little bit for you, different from value investing because you're looking at the growth profile of the company, not so much the price you paid. It's not about identifying cheap companies. It's identifying companies with improving profiles. It's a little bit different. It's more growth-focused and value-focused. Yeah. I mean, uh, value investing's changed a lot nowadays. I think there's you know your, your penny pinches. And then there's your Warren Buffetts of the world who are intrigued about businesses that have good fundamentals. But yeah, I think uh, looking at changes is something that we're all looking for. And I guess when you're thinking about change and therefore risk, how does that, you know, like it sounds like on a risk, you know, looking at risk, I guess, in, in general, you're going to be assessing, well, what, what are really the things that are going to affect the downside of this business? Would that sound about right? Uh, I'm usually, when I'm identifying those companies to invest in, I'm, I'm looking at the potential growth profile of the company. And then when it comes to before investing, then the risk assessment happens. So what's the potential downside case to what I think might be a good good story? So um, I, I definitely wouldn't classify myself as a value investor um, because it's not just about buying cheap assets. Yeah. For me, it's by, about buying companies with improving business profiles. I want to jump to media commentary. You've done a lot over the years and there's a lot out there. Like if you just search the name Julia Lee, there's many interviews I've seen with Sky News, CNBC, ABC. I, I remember for a while you had um, – you're hosting a few shows on Sky News. I think, um, what was one of them? Your Money, Your Call. I know, I remember seeing you on Your Money, Your Call. There was Equity Investor, the Your Money Channel. Although I think the Your Money Channel, that was recently uh, closed, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I have done a lot of media work uh, in in the past. A lot of that had to do with um, the my roles at different companies, um, where there there was a media component to it. Um, what do you think you've learnt as a media commentator? Do you think it's made you? Do you think it's changed the way that you see things at all? I'm I'm really. Um, quite proud of my ability to communicate and the reason I say that is because it doesn't come naturally to me. Um, I was always an introvert growing up. Um, I found it hard to speak um, and in fact when I first got my uh, a job doing a lot of public speaking, I was one of 10 that was recruited during the tech boom to go out and give seminars and teach people about investing. And before we um, were allowed to go out in front of clients, we had to do this um, this presentation in front of the executive team and only oh. when you pass that could you go and present in front of clients. Well, everyone except me and another guy, Phil, um, managed to pass that. So Phil and I used to come to work every day practicing by ourselves and thinking we were going to be um, fired because we couldn't do the job that we'd um, been hired yeah. to do. Phil went off to go in to be an advisor and he's still in advisory and doing really well. So then that just left me to come into practice every day by myself. And my mom says she's re- she remembers me bringing the camera home and just practicing in front of the camera. And she'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm practicing. Um, and I guess the point of this story is that um, a lot of people see me present and say, oh, you're such a natural communicator. But for me, it's something that I've really worked hard on. And it hasn't come naturally at all. And I, I guess that also characterizes um, my philosophy around anything, that if you start anything, you know, it's natural not to be good at it, whether it's investing, whether it's playing golf. And it's really just about sticking with it um, that you you get better over time. Do you find that um, it's made you better at explaining problems, solutions or investment ideas? having a hard time initially um i guess um i i because i've had to go through the steps to become a, a good communicator i do like helping people um when they they are um looking to present so i do enjoy teaching people about presentation skills training because um obviously i went through that journey as well yeah yeah, I could imagine, um, like, I, I find myself to be sort of ambiverted. I'm not quite extroverted. Well, I am extroverted, but I also like my time to myself, if that makes sense. I find a lot of the time if I do interviews, because, you know, we might do a few interviews a week uh, for our own show, for, for clients, whatever it may be, that I'm often tired just afterwards. I feel like that's an indicator for someone who does like, you know, their their own personal time. But I found that it's just it's made me better at just speaking in general. It's such a valuable, valuable tool and condensing ideas, it's been very good for that. Oh, absolutely. Um, um sometimes you learn more from teaching people than um from actually listening to yeah. someone else. Um but also, you know, it's been a difficult thing to do as well. If you think about my first presentation, it was when I was 22 years old. So there there are people out in the market who have been <laughs> coming to my presentations for, for quite a long period of time. Um, and that means that all my mistakes are in the public domain as well. Um, and I think you have to have a 
thick skin to be able to to get through some of those those times as well because basically all your th- thoughts on the market are almost on on public record over the last couple of decades so yeah, yeah. i try not to think too much when i do make mistakes because it's only human um <laughs> and i a lot of the time when i am um doing interviews i just think that i'm chatting to someone and no one else is watching and i guess that's my way of dealing with things like television mm, it's sort of like hot um being in that hospitality environment but on steroids like uh, we've all yeah. had having worked worked in hospitality um we've all had those moments for me it's spilling a glass of red wine in the middle of a table where all the guests were wearing white oh. and it just splashed <laughs> over everyone and there was another moment where i was sort of i held a tray of glasses at a function everyone was sitting down i was walking behind and then someone just decided to stand right up Suddenly, oh. and all, all the drinks just from that tray went all over their back. And um, uh, like, can you can you remember any moments like that? Oh, I, I spill drinks over myself frequently. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a klutz. <laughs> In fact, the other uh, week I was doing a presentation at the Fullerton Hotel, and I was um, coming out of the hotel and walking down the steps. And I completely tripped on my hands and knees and had people no. running up to me saying, are you okay? I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> that, that stuff is gold. That stuff will, uh, will, make, uh, will make you thick-skinned. That's for sure. I, I found that like working, <laughs> working in hospitality as well, when you have those moments, like afterwards you just, you just don't care about anything socially um, as much, I guess. Um, yeah. But I, I found that they they made me tough. That's for sure. Um, I, I'm I'm thinking about your role as a, a CIO, and there's a lot of leaders and well-known leaders in this space um, who do commentary, who have ideas. I mean, you know, you you think about the world famous ones like Ray Dalio or the Ray Dalios of the world. Mm. Uh, are there CIOs that you really? look to or investors that you really look to at all? Yeah, my favourite is uh, Stanley Druckenmiller. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think he's ever seen a quarter of negative growth, um, but, you know, the growth rates uh, have been phenomenal. And I, I'm also a big fan of research. So I, one of the nerdy things I like to do is go back and read academic research. Um, uh-huh. And I do that on a weekly basis. Um, so a lot of the concepts, my investing concepts, because my view is I wouldn't have, there's no way that I, I've lived through enough market events. Um, I wasn't working during the 1987 stock market crash. You know, I wasn't around during the depression or the Spanish flu. So I do like to read and learn from history as well. And I, I love to read what other people have been studying in terms of the markets. Um, yeah, Stan- Stanley Drunkenmiller is, is uh, one of those long-time uh, champions of industry. I, I love his stuff. And I, it's funny you mentioned the academic stuff because I remember like getting deep into some, uh, I guess you could call it academic. It was peer-reviewed, but I remember like reading a piece recently on um, how technical analysis only works in certain markets uh, by the Federal Reserve of New York. That sort of stuff I find super duper fascinating because it sort of tries to distill 
what is like the markets are really just a another form of psychology studies, right? A lot of the time, because people, it's people's perceptions, and so when you can find studies that really get scientific on things that people use or do in the markets, I find ultra fascinating. Um, so anything around like uh, m- you know marketing, psychology, propaganda, and related to markets, I found I find ultra fascinating. Um, yeah. I, I'm thinking about we, we've spoken to this uh, to a lot of guests rather. Um, a lot in the last few weeks, and that is the crypto markets. And that is one of the things that has come off exponentially in the last 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of lot of the market, I think, when I was looking today, I think uh, Bitcoin was down about 35%. Um, I know it's not your area of expertise, but as someone who's always focused on equities, what intrigue or insight have you had to you know bitcoin and crypto markets today sure i think um you see something new coming along sort of all the time in terms of markets i mean during the tech boom it was technology stocks and i guess when you have a look at these boom and busts especially in the initial phases you see this big boom that happens and then a bust that happens and then you sort of see what comes out of the ashes and that tends to be the trend. You saw that in terms of tech stocks and generally anything that new that comes along, um, you, you tend, I think you tend to see that sort of boom bust and then see what comes out of the ashes type of scenario. So look, cryptocurrencies I think come out of the technological advancements that, that we're making. Um, we've seen the big boom and we've seen a bit of a bust and I guess now it's just to, it's just about seeing what comes to the surface um, yeah. uh, because a lot of the cryptos I would say would be more a fad type of thing as we saw with a lot of the tech companies that were a lot around in the tech boom. I mean, you don't hear of Davnet or adultshop.com anymore because they're no longer <laughs> around and yet you do have your Microsofts out there in the world and you have these amazing companies like Amazon which have come out of the ashes of uh, the, the tech bust. So I wouldn't write off crypto. I would say it's still in its infancy in terms of its journey. But like with asset any asset I look at sort of demand supply. So where's the demand coming from? What's the supply like? And what's the what's going to be the you know the growth drivers or the catalyst of, of that particular area? So I'm not an expert in crypto, but when it mm. comes to analyzing assets, whether it be grain or oil, for me a lot of it comes down to supply and demand. Yeah, I think that's a common theme. I think we're we're still sort of in the very early days, um, and it's by and large a technical development as opposed to a market development. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I think maybe twenty years from now it'd probably be um, a more relevant conversation. Um, I, yeah, I've got and, a- and I also question whether it's just a, a technology angle that we're looking at or an alternative um, currency. Um, and if it's the alternative currency, I really I can't see governments around the world. Um, I guess, just allowing that to occur. I mean, here in Australia, now we're seeing what cash payments over $10,000 being illegal. So in that type of environment, I would, would, um, if I had to forecast, I would say it would be governments um, releasing their own digital currencies to try and take control of that process. Yeah, I think um, 
it is it is definitely a technical development. I think it's a an advent of the way that we engage in the structure of assets as opposed to actual assets themselves. Um, but yeah, we could talk about that for ages. Yeah, it's um, such an interesting area. <laughs> I've um, I want to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish you off. Sure. So, what does your morning routine look like? I have two children, so it's preparing lunch, getting them off to school, and then uh, jumping on a bus or driving into work. Okay. And evening, how do you sort of decompress at night? You're not watching Neighbours? A bottle of red wine, (laughs) usually, and um, because I'm not a big TV watcher, whatever my husband wants to watch, which is usually really trashy, by the way. It's things like (laughs) Married at First Sight, Bachelor. He's into all of that stuff. Usually, I just uh, curl up on the couch with him with a book, and I'm reading some finance book. Okay. Yeah, Married at First Sight. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, like we're in an era now. Someone who works in the marketing world, but obviously I still deal with a lot of finance companies. You read and you pay attention to, you know, the news from Mumbrella and uh, it it is not surprising to me that reality television is like the highest grossing in terms of viewers in Australia because, you know, it's cheap to make and people are dramatic uh, but I just don't get it. I don't. I don't get the interest in maths at at all. I think like you could watch a highlight section for five minutes and you'd know what had happened. So um, anyway, that that's that's another story. Um, now, if you had to gift a book, speaking of books, if you had to gift one to the audience for uh, the impending uh, quarantine that we'll all be having. Um, and assume that all of a sudden that uh, we can't go outside and there's no TV. <laughs> what uh, what book should people be reading? Finance based. Anything that you want. Oh, one of my favorite books is uh, this is uh, it's called The Name of the Wind. Okay. It's a the fantasy novel by Patrick uh, Roth- Rothfuss. Okay. Um, What's it about? Uh, I guess it's like see, I've ne- I've never watched Game of Thrones, but I've read the books, so I find it more fascinating than Game of Thrones. I just, uh-huh. yeah, I think he was a fantastic read. Oh, just the way he describes things, like um, I think on the first page of the book, he says um, it was a silence that was in three parts. Um, on the top part was just the quietness, and then distills the silence into different parts in that it was an eerie silence that, and then it goes into sort of more of the history of the silence. It was just wow. – it's, it's really well written. Um, if it was an investment book, I have lots of um, favourite investment type books, as you'd imagine. And um, one of the ones that I re- I'm really enjoying at the moment, it's, it's called The Best Investment Writings. <laughs> and it's wow. just a collection of uh, different articles, which uh, are pretty current um, – so I, I like that one. And um, I also really enjoy Market Wizards, which is a series of interviews with different traders and investors. Okay, very nice. Well, we'll make sure we link them all um, so people can check that out. Last question for you. If you had to have a billboard, you're in Sydney, right? Yes. So you can have a billboard anywhere in Sydney. What would you put on it and why? Be kind. <laughs> <laughs> now, why why be kind? 
Oh, I just think, you know, I'm, I'm in the market, so I've had a pretty rough few weeks. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, money's just money and it's really how we interact with people that's, I think, important. Mm, I like that one. Yeah, particularly with the last few weeks, it's very contextual. Uh, people being tasered for pinching toilet paper or finding <laughs> yes. toilet paper. Um, I, I I was having this debate last night with friends at dinner, um, and I was tr- I'm trying to understand why toilet paper in particular because it's not like an Australian phenomenon. It's ha- it happened Come in Hong you. Kong. It happened if- in Hong Kong and it happened <laughs> in Singapore a month beforehand when they first started having issues, and I I don't get it. We could call this the toilet paper crash. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> the toilet paper crash. I think mean, it's psychological. Um, you love psychology and it's really about that hurting behaviour. Yeah. And I guess it sort of taps into that um, sort of primitive need <laughs> for security, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we were debating that. Like maybe it was because toilet paper is sort of like a perishable item, like perishable food. But my argument was like wouldn't the, you know, I know humans aren't rational, but wouldn't you run to the tin food aisle first? Because like you can only tin, you can only tin food at certain t- some foods at certain times of the year, right? And then if tin and if tins are, are gone, then people will be really freaking out. Or like maybe it was perishable items, like maybe just all the big lamb roasts. Like I'm thinking about myself. We bought like two leg lamb uh, roasts and just whacked them in the freezer just in case. I would have thought no. they would have gone, but no, they were right stocked up. So, so why do you think we've had the run on toilet paper? I, uh, the only thing that I can make sense of is uh, what you said before. It's it's security. It's a perishable item. Uh, we're all used to wiping our butt with uh, this nice soft thing and no one can imagine a world where you have to use something else. So I don't, the weird all- thing I find is that my mum has one of those um, those water taps on the toilet that washes your bum after oh, you go. Oh, the bidet. Yes, so she doesn't even need toilet paper, and yet she went out and bought some. And I was like, "Mum, why? <laughs> yeah. why?" Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I I mean, maybe we were saying we were sort of saying maybe it's because toilet paper is not sold in ind- like cans are sold in individual cans. You know, you, you might buy like 100 grams of something or 200 grams of something in a can, but in a to- in to- with toilet rolls, they sell them in packs, right? So, you can't mm. you can't buy six toilet rolls or five or seven or nine. You have to buy 20 or 10. <laughs> so, it's just like it, it's it's um, the way that it's been set up from a marketing point of view and, and how you buy toilet paper, I think, is really what's led to this because it just mm. means that you have to buy lots at a time. And there's a finite amount. So, anyway. And hurting behavior is amazing because, you know, there's been a lot of studies on hurting. And even if you understand the psychological concept of it, it doesn't stop you from doing it. And they found that in terms of um, professional investors as well. Just because you understand a psychological concept doesn't mean that you're not subject to it. Oh, 100%. I think um – that the greatest thing you can have as an investor is knowing that you are completely susceptible to it. And I think to think otherwise is just cognitive dissonance. So, (laughs) um, but look, Julia, thank you so much for doing this. It's been Um, a pleasure. It's been a busy week. Uh, Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, You can go to bermaninvest.com.au. Otherwise, I'm active on Twitter, Julia Lee AU, and um, I would love to hear from you. Yeah.
Awesome. We'll make sure we link all that. Um, I'm sure people will be following and seeing what you're up to after this. I'd recommend following on Twitter. Um, finance Twitter is the best Twitter in the world. I find it's um, it's probably the best social platform for me at the moment. Um, but you know, there's also a lot of people panicking and freaking out, so it provides some funny moments. Mm. Um, but look, thanks for doing this, and it's um, been a pleasure, Jordan. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S. Until next time, thanks for listening.